This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello, and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and joining me today, we have a very special guest. Uh, it's Chris Nunn, a lecturer in film and TV at Greenwich University in London, and we're actually recording at the university as well. Hi, Chris. Hello. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for hosting us here. It's, it's uh, part of our Primitive Culture tour of the higher education institutions <laughs> of London. We've been to LSE, now we're at Goldsmiths. Uh, no, no, sorry. I was at Goldsmiths earlier tonight. Now we're at Greenwich. Big mistake there. Yeah. There's <laughs> no rivalry one. at all no. between the two. Goldsmiths <laughs> will have to be <laughs> somewhere along the line. Sure. But anyway, thank you for having us. Um, and the reason I was keen to get you on for this episode Ooh. is the topic that we're discussing today is a film topic. And it's, it's about basically the uh, cinematic influences on First Contact. And Ooh. when I asked you to come on this show, I had this idea at the back of my mind for a while. I knew I'd... I'd read this somewhere, and, and then I, uh, you agreed to come on the show, and then I was mm. looking around, and I couldn't find this interview. And in the end, it was actually Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek, who oh. helped me out, because I, I contacted him and I said, you know, I'm sure I read this interview with Jonathan Frakes where he talked about the films that he watched when he was preparing to direct First Contact. I just can't find it anywhere. And anyway, Larry told me, go and look up the making of Book for First Contact, which I had in my bedroom back mm-hmm. in the 90s and haven't looked at since. And sure enough, there I found on the page, I, I'm just going to read this section, because I think mm. It will hopefully set up the discussion yeah, that we sure. can have. So it says, In preparation, Frakes studied the work of several genre masters, viewing such great films as Alien, Aliens, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Blade Runner and Jaws. I looked at all the good ones, he says, I was always told steal from the good ones if you can. I think those are the films that audiences loved because they combined action with storytelling. And that's what I'm hoping we did with this one. And then it goes on and says, Of all the films, Jaws seems the most interesting choice, having little to do with invading aliens or outer space. Frakes says he selected that film because the implied threat of the shark is what I'm hoping to do with the Borg. There's an implied threat before we actually see them. I thought the way Spielberg developed that in Jaws was wonderful, where a lot of it is played in reactions and with sound. It was a very good jumping off point. Whenever you reveal a villain, you want to make sure the audience and the characters are scared first so that the build-up and the tension are there. So maybe we could start off um, talking a little bit about Jaws and the way that that film might have influenced Frakes' work. Yes, that makes uh, it makes a lot of sense. The um, you know famously the shark doesn't really appear 
And that really was Spielberg's trick to actually creating tension, especially, of course, that, that infamous scene right at the opening. Well, it's all shot point of view. Mm. And, and so we don't see the shark. We just see what the shark sees. And then everyone's thinking, well, oh my God, what's going on? And, and, uh, I suppose in a way you're confusing the audience, you know, by, mm. by immersing them in this space. And I think that you can see that a lot in what he does in First Contact. Uh, certainly those early, you know, the Borg don't appear. You don't see your first drone for about 40 minutes, mm-hmm. um, apart from obviously the nightmare sequence uh, with Picard at the opening. Mm-hmm. So you don't see your first Borg drone for about 40 minutes. As the crew start getting assimilated, it's getting hot in engineering, they realise something's going on. Mm-hmm. It's all shot point of view. Mm-hmm. So you either you, you either have the characters looking around or you have a Borg drone looking at them. Lots of shadows, mm-hmm. which I tend to imagine he actually took from Alien, but we'll get there in a second. I was going to say, uh, the, f- the first sort of hint of a Borg that we see is a very alien-like shot. It's just a shadow. Absolutely, kind of, yeah. Very unborgy because it looks quite fast. It looks quite... Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't look like what you'd associate with the Borg at all, but it's very much the idea of a kind of unseen threat. Totally. Is, you know, and I think, oh, again, you know, what we've seen of the Borg so far... There's a couple of things to say, I suppose. One of them is that they had to update it mm. a little bit to be, I suppose, for the big screen. Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden you've got, you know, you've got audiences in a cinema. It's a very different environment to audiences at home on TV. Um, and I think that they made a creative choice in there somewhere. Uh, the Borg are still a bit bulky in, and, and, and slow to move in, in parts of the film, but actually they're a bit more threatening and a little bit faster but I put that down to a difference in kind of what you need to do for cinema versus what you need to do for TV. They're more physically intimidating, I think, mm. as well, aren't they? I mean, on Next Gen, you know, the, the threat from the Borg was more their sort of, the, the number of them and their kind of implacability, I suppose. Mm. Whereas the Borg in First Contact, you get more of this kind of hand-to-hand fighting. You get yeah. more of this kind of the idea that they, they seem very strong. They seem very physically kind of imposing in mm. a way. Yeah, definitely. Um there is that. Um, and of course, they've updated the whole look, mm. uh, which then actually, I suppose, influenced hugely the way that Voyager's yeah. uh, aesthetic of the Borg was was taken on. Yeah. And there were arguments, actually, um, I was reading something today from one of the production designers, I can't remember his name. There were arguments about Picard's suit in right. the dream sequence. Yeah, yeah. And the studio didn't want to pay for a new one so he said just use the one from the television show mm. and then the designer was like i can't do that because <laughs> this, you know th- this was designed for sort of tv four by three yeah and now i'm yeah. shooting i'm shooting on film and i'm in and, I, and i'm on a, a wide screen yeah and it's just going to look awful yeah so uh, there is a tale about how he cobbled then together the the right the, the new suit for the car it's interesting is, i i heard recently that they there are actually only something like seven or eight Borg in that film. There are only Mm. that many costumes, and that's why you never see more than that number at a time. But the way it's edited and the way it's done, it gives the impression that they're they're everywhere and there are loads of them. It's very cleverly done. I think that reusing of actually quite a limited uh, resource in terms of costuming. Totally, and actually, um, I suppose, to move the discussion on ever so slightly to talk about kind of um, resourcing an alien, well, you know, here we have the alien has about four minutes of screen time in a two-hour film. Mm. So while they did design famously that that elaborate costume and that was done by H.R. Geiger and there was a man who played the alien, Mm. God knows what that was like. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, so while you had all of that, it was a real economy 
mm. of of screen time. And again, you could say the same of Spielberg and Jaws, uh, a real economy of actually, you know, by the time you do see the shark later on in the film and it's actually eating the boat and you think, well, you know, yes, it does look very real and the threat is real at that point, but... God, it was better when it wasn't there. Yeah. You know. Um, and this was born out of necessity, right? Because they were having trouble with the shark. I think yes, the that's... animatronics weren't working and yeah. there, were, there were all these kind of issues. And as a result, I mean, as you know, as you see so often with TV and film, when, when limitations are placed on you, sometimes it, it generates more creative solutions in yes. a way. And, and so with Jaws, you know, basically they conjure the shark with, like you say, with points of view storytelling and with that musical score, which is such a big part of it. Absolutely. Um, and, and I wonder whether partly it's also just that you're, you're putting the imagination of the audience to work in a sense. The less you show them, the more they kind of build it up in their head. Whereas actually, you know, the shark model in Jaws is not as terrifying as the shark that you've imagined up to that point. I mean, it, it's not its not kind of disjunctive with it. You don't mm. think, oh, that's not what I've been thinking. But at the same time, you've already imbued it with so much kind of power and so much yeah. uh, terror by that point that it kind of, I suppose like Frakes was saying in, the, in that quote, you know, it, it kind of enters with this kind of build-up. Mm. And I mean, you were saying we don't see the Borg for a long time. We particularly don't see the Borg Queen, I think, until about an hour into the film. Yeah, that's know, correct. halfway you, through, you, more than halfway. You hear her first. Mm. And she's speaking, and then there's obviously, again, a bit of mystery around that. I think there's a really interesting shot in that sequence where you get a shot of the wires at the top that that then, you know, that's where she's going to come from mm. in the end, but we don't know that at that point. Uh, so you just get this shot of the pipes kind of moving mm. uh, and Data obviously speaking to someone, but mm. we don't know who that is uh, or what that is. And obviously, again, building a bit of mystery around that and letting the audience do a bit of work. And it's then, yeah, it's about reactions. Sorry. Similarly, with the with the Borg, I suppose you get. I mean, I'm thinking of that scene in Sit Bay when they're mm. evacuating Sit Bay, and you know that is probably the first scene where the Borg are are literally in the scene, and mm. yet again we don't see them. And that has got to be a, a creative choice on Frex's part. That's got to be a because that is quite a bold directorial decision in a way to have it. You know, if you look at sort of. What happens in this scene, the board break into sickbay, but by the time they get there, they're, they're on the way out and the doctor has to stall them and so mm. on. But we literally, even at the very end, we see, you know, we see the door getting dented from the other side. And then we just see a reaction on Robert Picardo's face. And we never cut back to see what he's looking at, yeah. even throughout that entire scene. And yet somehow it works. And even it works... You know, Robert Picardo is able to sell it, even as someone who is not terrified of the Borg, mm. because he has that sort of mixture of, you know, he has a kind of degree of horror on his face mm. and sort of revulsion, even though he's not actually threatened by them the way that, you, you know, an organic being would be. Mm. Yeah, no, completely. And it is, it is that. So you've got the two crewmen who are assimilated at the beginning. We hear mm. one of those is off screen. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one is a point of view shot from the point of view of a Borg drone racing towards her. Again, her reaction is what's is what is selling uh selling us on on how scary this is and again with Picardo and and uh, the the EMH yeah you know only him as opposed to seeing a horde of drones come through the door and that woman who's attacked in the in the Jeffrey's tube that mm. is very much 
to me from watching Jaws, that's the mo- that's the most Jaws like moment in First Contact mm. because it's there's there's this concept, isn't there, of the Spielberg face mm-hmm. uh, that he uses in his films that um, of exactly what we're what we're talking about, I suppose, of focusing on the reaction rather than the thing that's being yeah. reacted to. So, for example, in Jurassic Park, you know, when they first see the dinosaurs, yeah. you have that shot of them in the car and they they pull their sunglasses down and they step up, and often people step towards the camera. There's mm-hmm. there's either a movement towards the camera or the camera moves towards them. Yeah, and and you see that definitely in that in that shot that there's basically a sort of fast zooming in on that woman's face as she screams and then it cuts. Yeah. Very much like the the zoom, you know, the famous one in George, probably the most the famous shot, shot. Uh, yeah. in George where Absolutely. Uh, the policeman guy Brody, Brody yeah. is on the beach and the and it zooms in on his kind of yeah. horrified reaction. Mm-hmm. And that definitely is a kind of Spielberg trademark in a sense mm. that Frakes has has borrowed in this instance. Yeah, I think so, absolutely. Uh yeah, that Chief Brody shot is is an absolute classic and it reminded me uh again of that and of leaving it up to again the audience is is over to us really in this sense in kind of creating the creating the monster and creating the fear ourselves, which is a really fascinating technique. And again, the Jurassic Park shot is a is an absolute classic for that as well. What have they just seen? Mm, um, mm. I think it's really interesting, and it's interesting. I mean, I found uh, once once you're sort of aware of that when you watch Spielberg's films, because you know we're going to come on to talk about Close Encounters mm-hmm. in a minute. Uh, you realise how frequently he uses this trick, basically, mm. of, of showing uh, you know showing the reaction but not showing the thing that's being reacted to, or, or possibly showing it afterwards, but basically flipping the order. So mm. more conventionally, you might assume you. If you're thinking about like I'm going to shoot this story and put it on the screen, mm. you shoot the thing and then maybe you shoot the reaction afterwards. But this idea of flipping it round and therefore generating that anticipation is something that he had very much developed and is a kind of signature thing, right? Yeah, very much so. And yes, you're right. It's it's conventionally the wrong way round. Mm. And of course, not to say really that Spielberg is someone you associate with horror. He is someone you associate with science fiction mm. and. I suppose it's this concept of because it's not always horrific. I mean, the dinosaur reactions in Jurassic yeah. Park are are more about the wonder mm-hmm. and the spectacle. And Spielberg is very much a director who deals with this idea of spectacle. And one way to capture that is, of course, your characters in the narrative and what do they make of it? Yeah. Um, and like you say, that is the wrong way round. Mm-hmm. But it's a kind of uh, an economic technique in cinema that that somehow, I suppose, again puts the onus on the audience. Mm. to to think oh what have they just seen you know and and that could be a spaceship it could be an alien it could be a shark well also it sets up i suppose the character becomes an audience in the film because they're they're an audience reacting to the amazing thing before you as an audience react to it if you see what i mean so they're almost kind of in the in the way that say you might say lily sloan in first contact is a kind of audience uh, avatar mm-hmm. that that very technique is almost creating that kind of like a sort of parallel audience in the film that yeah. kind of reacts to everything yes i yeah i agree completely and it's actually that you know you have we find out things the audience find things out at the same time as the characters. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so uh, Lily Sloan is, a, is you're right, a fantastic example of a character who's put in there so that we can sit there and think, oh, God, how would I react? You know, I've just been beamed up to the Enterprise, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, oh, my God, there's Earth down there, you know, in that, in that scene with the force field. And you think... So, and then you see a Borg drone for the first time, you know, and that, that freaks mm. her out big mm-hmm. time. And again, we get some nice point-of-view shots there as well. We do see yeah. the drones... 
you know, we do see them physically, but we also see what they see, which is her bumping into things and, and screaming. screaming. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's very interesting. But it's, it is the idea that not just are we kind of seeing, seeing what the reaction to what they're seeing, but sometimes we're on that journey of discovery mm. with the characters as well. Again, Jaws probably isn't one. Alien is a great one where, you know, the, the, the crew have no more of an idea what's yeah. going on than, than the audience do for large portions of that film. So you find out with them. And again, that's deployed in first contact. They're, Absolutely, a, they're yeah. a Borg on the ship. The crew don't know it. All they know is it's got hotter. That's it's, it. Exactly. Their yeah. kind of environment. Uh, uh, and similarly, there's there's that kind of, I mean, we'll come on to talk about Alien in mm. a bit, but, you know, that sense of, I mean, Tony and I did an episode a few months ago now about action movie influences mm. in Star Trek and we were looking at the alien films and the extent to which in this film it has to be hot so that you can kind of strip Picard down to his vest and that that, that kind of association of action with kind of almost this sort of gym workout that you know everyone gets very hot and sweaty and, and it's all very kind of bodily and, and physical somehow. Yeah, and there's... Very much um, the opposite of the kind of clean, hermetically sealed enterprise, if you know what I mean. Yes, yeah, no, completely. Yeah, and actually, you know, there are very few, just to be university for a second, there are very few academic texts on action movies as mm-hmm. a genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the most famous one is uh, Yvonne Tasker's Fantastic Bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it Fantastic Bodies or something like that? But, you know, and uh, so very much, it's very much about the physical. Mm. And, uh, and that's something that you don't see often in Star Trek, I don't think. Mm. Really, there are other moments in other films that I think get quite physical, but but first contact certainly, yeah. Let's get Picard in his vest, and actually, doesn't Patrick Stewart look surprisingly buff? And yeah, you know, yeah, all... <laughs> you can tell he's been you know working out for quite a while in yes, preparation for that for film. that one yeah, scene, for that one yeah, scene yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 definitely. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I suppose there is a degree of kind of gore and um, squelchiness in First Contact. I mean, I'm thinking about the the scene where Picard gets into the guts of Ensign Lynch and mm-hmm. rips out that whatever it is transponder transceiver yeah, yeah. little mechanical thing and that maybe ties into jaws a bit i mean jaws there's a lot of kind of body parts and blood and and kind of you know as, as there would be but there is a kind of a certain emphasis on that kind of the sort of horror of the of the people being ripped apart their insides being ripped out the kind of the, the horror basically the, yeah. the sort of horror movie side of there it. is and actually I suppose it goes a little bit beyond that in terms of because there's also that scene where you're wandering through I what I want to call it the Borg workshop where mm-hmm. they're installing the parts on the different people mm-hmm. and you have an arm like an arm waving about and you have someone's eye that's been replaced by mm-hmm. a mechanical thing. It's not very bloody. And actually, they do quite a good job to keep kind of red blood away, mm. not to talk about the undiscovered country and Klingon's pink <laughs> yeah. Klingon's pink blood, but um you know, he actually, again, is quite economic with that, while at the same time kind of freaking us out a little bit by preying on our body mm. kind of fears and thinking, oh, God, actually, what would it be like to have these cybernetic things implanted in us? There is that shot. I mean, I mean, aside from the opening shot of the drill going into yeah, the, the eye, the which eyes, is kind yeah. of horrific and I suppose sort of recalls that Salvador Dali film of the eye, you know, the eye oh, being... yeah, yeah, uh, Chien uh, Andalou. Yeah, so yes. that kind of... Just there's something so viscerally horrible about the idea of, of damaging someone's eyes like mm. that. But then we get it again with the Borg. There's there's one of, in that, that scene that you're talking about, there's a Borg who... The eye is shut, I think, but there's just the beginnings of some kind of Borg... Mm-hmm. Borgification of the, of the eye socket with mm-hmm. a little bit of kind of mechanical stuff on the eyelid. And that's quite sort of... There's something quite unpleasant about that. It looks like a sort of post-operative situation. Yeah. There's something quite 
it looks kind of painful and, and nasty, you know, compared to, so. compared to often with the Borg, I think we see them after they've been transformed and it's quite, it's all quite sort of clean at that point. Whereas in First Contact, we have, you know, and it's echoed in a way with, with Data when Data has his skin, because there's, mm-hmm. there's something about like the join between the mechanical and the skin that's slightly horrific. And there's another Borg towards the end of the film that you see kind of in the background that, again, looks slightly... There's something slightly kind of Frankensteinish about mm-hmm. it, something kind of stitched together about it. You know, it's it's mm. not a kind of, it's not like it was in the TV show where it just, you know, it was basically just a suit with some tubes uh, mm-hmm. sticking out of it. They, they 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 made the effort to make it all, to make that kind of boundary between the machine and the organic mm. feel a bit more troubled somehow. And you see it with the Queen as well, like those clamps that are, are pulling the skin down on her, that kind of interaction looks kind of slightly painful and then right at the end when obviously her skin dissolves yeah uh, but picard still breaks the neck of what yeah. of her cybernetic mm. kind of remnants and again that i suppose that the kind of overall point as aesthetically which would key into films like like jaws maybe for the body horror or a bit of gore but also alien aliens blade runner that kind of dirty sci-fi aesthetic, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, proper dystopia, which I don't think, again, Star Trek, traditionally speaking, is a, is a bit more utopian and, as you said, a bit more clean. Mm-hmm. And I think in First Contact, you know, in, in several ways, because they're doing it with the Borg, absolutely, and that's bringing the threat home a bit more than the TV show was ever able to do. Maybe certainly Next Gen Voyager kind of changed that a bit because they took on that aesthetic, I think. But they sanitised it, I think. And one of Mm. the interesting things, I was thinking watching Alice Krieger's performance in this, because, you know, she played the same role in Voyager, but Mm. I don't think in Voyager she had the same... It it didn't work as as well because, you know, they recast the part and it wasn't quite as good. And Mm. then they got her back and you thought, oh, well, it's going to be it's it's going to be upping the game again. And again, it didn't quite work. And I wonder whether it is partly there's something about the kind of oiliness of her. There's something about the kind of, you know, she looks kind of uh, sweaty and and sort of Mm. wet. And do you know what I mean? There's, There's something about her that she, you know, she is kind of sexy in a certain way but mm-hmm. she's also kind of revolting in a certain way mm. and I don't think when they recreated the character on Voyager that they captured that at all it all seemed much kind of cleaner and drier and more like it was on a soundstage somewhere and it was kind of they, they'd lost that kind of grunginess of it somehow I think the other thing they did though in, in, in Voyager that it was all green yeah like you yeah. know just from my memories of let's say so Dark Frontier Unimatrix mm. Zero and Endgame you know, she's in that room and there's an awful lot of green. Mm. And I suppose what this was well, two things to say, really. One is because you're on a Starfleet ship and you're in their engineering section mm. that I suppose we have the kind of traditional color palette of a Starfleet ship yeah. in which her skin looks kind of pale and you get the sweat and you get all of that, which I think would be diffused by a green yeah. light, yeah. even if they had done it, which I don't think they did. Mm. But even mm. if they had wanted a dirtier aesthetic, I don't think they were going to get it. Yeah. Uh, if they That's just made it really, it's really dark and green. Whereas I actually think bizarrely, there's a lot more light in that scene in first contact, you mm. know, and that mm. perhaps is, is something that lends itself towards her shininess. Mm-hmm. That's um, interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. I was just thinking in terms of just sort of going back to Jaws, I sort of wonder whether, because the the other films on this list, it's kind of obvious why 
they were looked at. Jaws is kind of the odd one out. I can't help wondering if it's the fact of the shark and the fact that, you know, you've got the character of Quince in Jaws, who Mm -hmm. is, you know, very much kind of Ahab character Mm -hmm. in the sense that Picard is an Ahab character. And yes, it's a shark and not a whale, but it's pretty much the same story. You go out in a boat and you Mm -hmm. try and uh, kill this sea creature and Mm -hmm. it smashes everything to pieces and kills everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, not quite everyone, but, you know, kills a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I sort of wonder whether that was the initial sort of impetus behind Frakes watching that film rather than these other things. But then at the same time, these other things seem to be what he ended up taking from it in some ways. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I think the, um, the, the kind of grizzled veteran, you know, veteran turned hunter on some kind of revenge mission, we do get a, a lot of that from Picard in in first contact there's there's various moments where you think actually he's he's really on edge here uh again that scene between him and and, and lily is 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 fantastic and, and extremely well well done so yeah that would make sense that you would want to look at look at that character maybe in in, in more detail um and then indeed actually patrick stewart played ahab he did um, yeah 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 year, a few years after i think so yes after. yeah yeah so i thought that was quite Definitely. Ironic. If yeah. he'd done it before, that yeah. would be maybe a bit more useful <laughs> for, could have worked for, that in. for freaks. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, maybe we should move on mm. from Jaws to look at Close Encounters. Because mm-hmm. Close Encounters, it's sort of easier to see. I mean, it's a classic, you know, science fiction film. But mm. it's, I suppose my sense is that it maybe connects less to the stuff Brandon Braga and Ronald Moore when they talked about writing this film they called it the upstairs downstairs aspects of the film that basically they had one story going on on the ship and one down on the planet I guess Close Encounters maybe ties in a lot more to the planet side story with Mm -hmm. Cochrane and particularly the final scene Mm. is almost I mean it's not a rip-off but it, it you know you can see the depth there to the to the final whatever it is, half an hour of Close Encounters, yeah, yeah. With, the, with the way the aliens arrive, yeah. with the way that's handled, with the sense, you know, going back to this idea of awe and, mm. uh, you know, this kind of Spielberg. People often talk about Spielberg as being quite kind of childlike, don't they? And he's yeah. often focused on children and this sort of childish wonder at yeah. things. And I suppose that's what you very much get in Close Encounters is this kind of, you know, it's very Star Trek in a sense. It's very kind of humanistic. It's very mm-hmm. kind of open-hearted. It's mm. not an alien invasion movie. It is people kind of coming forward and linguists and musicians and all these mm. people sort of trying to make sense of what's going on mm. uh, and try to sort of greet the unknown in mm. that kind of quite benign way, yeah. I suppose. I think that the way you can really see that kind of influence, and you're completely right about Spielberg's focus on on children, like, you know, again, E.T. being a really classic example of that. Um, but actually even having child characters around, again, Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. you know, um, they're never far, you know, they're never far. Uh, and even actually his Ready Player One that's coming out, I think, later this year is, is again another example of him actually kind of almost assuming the position of kind of uh, certainly younger people. But that's right. But that's good for an audience. It's really good in science fiction because we don't know what's going on and we don't understand everything, nor should we because it's science fiction uh, and the imagination is kind of running. And so actually by, by giving it that childlike thing, then you go, you're allowed, you're given license to imagine mm. along with then, then all these other people and be awestruck as opposed to assuming the position of a knowledgeable audience. That's quite difficult mm. because audiences are increasingly more aware 
I suppose, of what of what your your kind of film making techniques and, and what you're deploying. But where you really see it as the ship descends, we've got huge cues uh, coming from close encounters in terms of lighting, mm-hmm. just you know, uh, on on the crowd. But really, it's the faces of the crowd, mm. uh, and Frakes takes a lot of time that isn't. You know, if if you had to talk about, is is it necessary? Well, actually, maybe maybe not. But actually, there it is. We get shots not just of the kind of overall crowd who are kind of looking up in awe, in wonder, but definite close-ups of individuals mm. within this crowd. Again, reminiscent of close encounters of the third kind, but also um, we share that moment with them. You know, what what would it be like? And of course. Like if Lily acts as a bridge uh, for the audience thinking, what if I was beamed up onto the the Enterprise suddenly Mm. and the Borg were everywhere? Well, now we're actually in the crowd with the people of Earth and you start to imagine, uh, you know, well, what if, what if the tea planner has just landed? And it's the fact, I suppose it's the fact that they're extras. They're not, like you say, it's, it's, it's not focusing so much. I mean, it does focus obviously on Lily and Cochrane and so on, but the fact that they are these completely anonymous characters, Mm. they're basically, you know, featured extras Mm. that it, that does enhance that in a way because we know that they're not important people. They're just whoever happens to be around the same way as we are. We happen to be around sort of in the cinema. And they also do this thing. Everyone in that scene does exactly the same thing that everyone does in Close Encounters, which is a sort of variant of of the, the zoom to get the face shot is they all step into a close up. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the ship comes down, mm. the white light, exactly the same. Like you said, the lighting is the same. You've mm. got this bright white light and everyone takes a step forward to bring themselves into a kind of closer mm. framing in a way. And also, I suppose, symbolically, they're kind of embracing their future and they're kind of welcoming what's happening. You mm. know, they're not, they're not stepping back out of fear or whatever. There's this kind of, this element of it. But again, it sort of ties in very much to this sense of wonder and awe which in some ways when you think about it kind of is threaded through the film though because I think mm. if you go right back to quite early on in the film the stuff with the rocket and the way Picard reacts to the rocket mm. and he says to Data you know I saw this in the Smithsonian uh, a dozen times as a child or whatever so it, it's taking him back to his childhood in a sense mm. it's taking him back in time to this kind of innocent uh, experience in a sense and he wants to have this tactile relationship with it which of course ties into all the stuff that goes on with data and skin and 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 again the kind of physicality but also ties into this kind of childish desire to i mean what he does there is is kind of it's it's not childish but it's sort of it's not enlightened intellectual captain picard territory Mm. it's it's kind of quite basic and quite human and saying i want to touch this i want to feel it Mm. it's going to mean something and then throughout the film of course we see the way that everyone interacts with cochran you know you see the way geordie talks to him you Mm. see the way reg barkley Barkley, talks to him they're all completely awestruck by Mm. him even though he is not someone who deserves anyone's or whatsoever but they are all kind of reduced to this childish kind of infatuation almost Mm. with him and and you know the fact that we have geordie talking about his school that he went to Mm. and everything everyone seems to be sort of regressing Mm. in the presence of this kind of wonderful moment and of course in star trek's terms it it is a kind of childhood in itself because this is the the kind of pre-birth of the federation this is Mm -hmm. this kind of moment of you know humanity as this kind of child species growing up in Mm. a sense that's that's what first contact represents is this kind Mm. of moment this sort of transition from you know, us being this, what Q calls us in um, Encounter at Farpoint, a savage mm. child race, mm. to this sort of enlightened Star Trek that we know and love with the Federation and with these kind of values. Which is what 
I think if you read interviews with them, it's what Moore and Braga were trying to do in terms of the stakes of the film. Mm. Well, the stakes were Star Trek. Mm. You know, like everything that we've come to as, as an audience, as a very loyal audience, everything we've come to admire and appreciate about uh, these characters, about their values, about the Federation, about a kind of optimistic kind of view, a hopeful view for humanity's future. Well, actually, what's on the line in, uh, in uh, First Contact is, uh, is all of that because mm-hmm. <laughs> they go back and they've got to save it. Absolutely, you know? yeah. And they, and they make that mean something. I think they do a very good job of mm-hmm. setting up why it's important, which in some ways is, could be a challenge because it's, it's unusual in a sense that they're taking us into the past, but it's actually our future. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they're, but yet they're building in this kind of nostalgia for the, they still nostalgia for the future, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Because they're not doing what they originally were quite keen on doing was going back to the Renaissance and, and mm. having everyone in tights. And, and they had this idea of that there was something sort of appealing about the technology of the Borg versus this kind of, I suppose, because the Renaissance represents a period of a degree of technicalization. I mean, if you think of Leonardo da Vinci yeah, and Voyager, yeah. for example, you've got that kind of element of the kind of the mechanics coming up. But at the same time, they decided not to do that. I think they thought maybe it would be a bit twee and it'd be a bit silly. Mm. And so they created almost a second renaissance in mm. the future where this is the, this is the sort of socio-cultural, you know, this is, this is the renaissance of the, of the sort of human spirit in a sense, mm-hmm. rather than of technology. And of course, I mean, our podcast is called Primitive Culture, and that is a quote from this film. This is the way that Deanna Troy refers to the place that they've come to. They've come mm. to this, prim- this primitive society, in a sense. But, of course, what we're witnessing is the point at which it ceases to be that. It ceases to be a primitive culture. Mm. I mean, literally in terms of the Prime Directive, you know, they've got warp drive. They've got, you know, now the Vulcans are going to come and visit them. That's the kind of boundary point between, mm. in Star Trek's terms, a primitive civilization and a kind of spacefaring mm. civilization. But also just kind of culturally, it, this is humanity growing up in a way. Mm. Yeah, because... Well, as they say in the film again several times, this idea of there being a bigger world and there being, or I suppose a universe in this case, and uniting humanity in a way that no one thought possible, I think is the, is the quote. And that's absolutely what, what we get. And I suppose with lines like that peppered throughout, you know, then, then you really do, you really do get a sense of how high the stakes are for, for our characters. And we do get then, why they all feel this way about Cochrane, about the Phoenix, you know, all of these these things that is, you're right, a challenge for the writers because they, they created their own history, which is our future. That's that's caused them some trouble to, to think about how to do it. But at the same time, you know, I think they build it in very well. They do, personally. yeah. Um, and I suppose they almost need to give it the same way to say, it, you, you know, in the real world, if it was D-Day and, and, you know, the Borg interfered and D-Day went the wrong way or something, mm. we could kind of relate to how that would have affected the last, you know, 70 years of our history. And, yeah. and it would kind of mean something. They kind of managed to build that in, not just by showing the Earth, you, you know, assimilated at the mm. beginning, which obviously sets up the stakes in quite straightforward terms, but by kind of emphasising what that sort of journey is that's going to be interrupted in a sense and, mm. and what the stakes are on a more sort of philosophical level i suppose mm. the other thing that struck me about close encounters is actually kind of interesting is the ending of close encounters 
there's two endings, right? Because I think there's the director's cut. And I know when we did our episode on The Wrath of Khan, we were talking about director's cuts. Mm, I listened and to that. Did you? Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and Tony Robinson was saying that his least favourite director's cut was the Close Encounters one because it shows you what happens inside the ship, uh-huh. which the original yeah, yeah. cut doesn't. And I thought that's kind of interesting because actually Close Encounters, it very consciously in the in the theatrical cut, ends on the earth. It ends with the people left behind. So the ship goes off, it disappears, and we don't have access to that journey. We kind of are left to imagine it. And from mm. looking at the outside of that ship, you can kind of imagine the wonders that are within it, but you're not going to see it. They've, they've gone, they've left. And so what we're left with is a child, again, mm-hmm. you know, saying goodbye, um, and the reaction of the crowd. And again, in First Contact, which I think is is more surprising, given that this is a Star Trek story, it's a science fiction mm-hmm. story, it's set in the future, it's set on the Enterprise. The final scene is not on the bridge of the Enterprise. Mm. There's the sort of penultimate scene is on the bridge of the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And then the final scene is back uh, on Earth, in not just Earth, but, you know, primitive Earth, mm. watching the Enterprise leave from their perspective and mm. then sort of sitting with them for a minute. And that is quite an unusual way of doing it. It's, it's almost the same thing you get with the episode First Contact, where the whole thing is told from the perspective of the aliens, not from the perspective of the Starfleet crew. That's the one where Riker and they, 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 they're kind of ultimate, yes, aren't they? Yes, exactly. The next generation, and they're, um, the Mintarkans? No, no, it's right, not that. Right? No, that's, uh, no, that's, that's a different one. That's who watches the Watchers. Oh, yeah. it's another it. one yeah, where yeah. Riker is undercover yeah. and they discover it and it's all about how do they manage this because they kind of botched first contact in a sense. It's a yeah, sim- yeah, yeah. similar story. Similar. But, but again, it's it, it's told from the perspective very much of the aliens Alien. uh, who are having a sort of alien invasion story in a yeah, sense yeah. rather than from you know our perspective. It is interesting, and what's really nice, again, if we talk about leaving stuff up to imagination, well, you know, your Trek audience, so maybe not mainstream cinema-going audiences, if any of those, you know, I mean, the film was a commercial success, so we tend to assume that not only Trekkies went and saw First Contact at the cinema, that, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I suppose Spock is so culturally famous, and the idea of Vulcans and logic you know, is so widespread that when we see those Vulcans sit down and sip tequila and then Cochrane, you know, pops on the jukebox, we can't see any of that dialogue. It's very physical mm-hmm. and we're moving away from it. Mm-hmm. But we are left to imagine, my God, what must that have been? Yeah. What yeah. must that have been like? That, that initial meeting. And then I suppose... Yeah, I won't really comment on what Enterprise does with that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Well, why don't we, let's move on from Spielberg mm. to the next director that maybe would be worth thinking about is Ridley Scott. Mm. And interestingly, my understanding is Ridley Scott was offered this film before Frakes, because Frakes talks in some of the interviews about the fact that he knew he wasn't first choice for this film. They tried to sort of entice a kind of A-list director. Mm. I don't think they'd actually sent it to Spielberg, but I think they he sort of implies at least that they'd sent it to Ridley Scott and also John McTiernan, yeah. interestingly, who did Die Hard, right? Yeah. Is that John McTiernan? Yeah. Which is interesting when you think of the Picard sort of iconography of Picard yeah, yeah. and his vest and everything. There's You can kind of see the logic there. And Ridley Scott certainly you know, two films that I guess tie into this very much, Alien and then Blade Runner. We talked a little bit about Alien, but what do, what do we talk a little bit more about Alien first and then maybe yeah, we'll move sure. on, to, on to Blade Runner? Um, yeah, that's it. that influence is really clear. I think if I, if you were to be a little bit critical, uh, and I, I actually think First Contact is a really nice length for a film, so I, I don't want to be too 
kind of critical in that sense but i think the one thing that alien does and then of course maybe other audiences might find alien too slow mm -hmm. but i think what it does masterfully is about an hour of build up mm. and then an hour of, of of hitting the fan so mm. you know like and again like i say real economy of screen time alien is only seen for four minutes i mean we we i'm trying to think the first time we see it it might only be oh, who's killed first brett it's Brett, isn't it? And he's going here, kitty, kitty, kitty. It's right, that, okay. that scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Again, where incidentally he's very hot. Mm. Like there's a lot of humidity in that room. Mm -hmm. And again, anytime the alien's involved, there's a lot of humidity in the room. So mm -hmm. uh, that's something that I think the idea, I'm not sure it's in canon anywhere else that Borg ships are hot. No, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Like I really did, did as far as I know... You I'm wrapping my brain. You don't get that sense, certainly in Best of Both Worlds. I don't think you get Or indeed or, in... Um, What's the first one? Um, the Q. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Q2. Q2, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, no. Q-Who, sorry. Q-Who, yeah, Q -who. exactly. So yeah. you don't, and that would have been, you know, if they're exploring the ship for the first time, mm. I figure we would have got the info. Yeah, you're right. Then. You're right, yeah. So that's something they've added, and I don't have a huge problem with that at all. Indeed, Star Trek is always this evolving kind of uh, kind of pool of, of canon. So, but yes, the Borg ships weren't hot before that, as far as I can remember. Or afterwards, no. And the, I mean, the other thing that they've added, which is not so much about, you might say it's more about aliens than alien, mm. but I found an interesting quote from Ron Moore where he mm. says, basically, they tried to write the script initially with the Borg as this, as they were in the TV show, as this collective, as this kind of uh, faceless, leaderless, you know, collective. Mm. And they felt it didn't work because they felt that they needed um, a villain, essentially. They needed someone that you could... A, kind of understand, but also that you could hate and that you mm. could want to be destroyed. And and what he says is that, you know, in Alien they had it because there was only one alien. Mm. Whereas in Aliens, the whole idea was, look, there's lots of aliens, but they still needed to have... He says what, he says they had to find the big mama eventually. Exactly. And that's yeah, the yeah, thing yeah. is that, like... Which is a kind of interesting way of thinking about the Alien film. So, like, yes, Aliens was like, yes, we, we build it all up. It's more, 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 more. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't work without one special alien there's got to be one that is kind of the the, the big alien in a sense yeah. that is is the real threat behind it all and in the same way they sort of felt that this film wouldn't work if it was just loads of borg running around and there and there wasn't one borg that you could kind of interact with yeah i think that's a re that's a really interesting point and i i com i completely agree i think that um certainly it's not just Star Trek films. I mean, films really run off this idea of having a, a primary antagonist, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, Star Trek does that incredibly well. That's what I think the strength of a lot of films, Khan, Kruge, and um, Chang. Yeah. You know, again, I, don't, I think Star Trek V is a bit of a mess. And, and, you know, is it is the antagonist God or Cyborg? I'm not really sure. But, and you maybe know, that's part of the problem in a sense yeah in, in a sense because yeah. what works you know what works say with khan is khan is is a very uh, you know a bit like the borg queen it, it's kind of mad in a sense mm. but also quite comprehensive you can understand mm. where he's coming from you can understand what he wants it's all quite clearly laid out mm. he you know he's not a sort of mustache twirling villain exactly he's, he's a very you know over the top villain but mm. at the same time he's a villain that is kind of psychologically grounded yeah and i think with the queen as well you do get a sense that there is a logic to what she's doing. It does sort of make sense. She's very much on top of everything. She's got a plan. When things go wrong, she changes her, you know, she even says, she says we're changing the plan. Mm -hmm. You know, she, she is an antagonist who is, you know, there's a kind of game of chess going on. There's a kind yeah. of manoeuvring going on back and forth, just as there was with Khan. Yeah, completely. Um, and 
I think I, I agree with the creative decision. I think I, I, it probably divided fans at the time. Mm. Uh, indeed, it might well still divide fans, having the Borg Queen and, and how that kind of works. I think if you refer to them as a sort of hive mind, which is mm-hmm. done quite often, then, of course, bees work as a collective and have a queen. So, mm. you know, there, there is this... Um, it does make some sense, and I think was was therefore quite a clever invention. Um, and you're right, she is psychologically grounded, you know her motives might not always be totally clear, but I suppose she's 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 running the show. I mean, yeah. well, that's yeah. it. I mean, and that's all you really need to know. I suppose I was just thinking when you're saying you need a, a clear antagonist in a mm. film. The exception to that probably is the zombie film, isn't it? In a uh-huh. sense, and of course that's another big influence, which is not in any of this list of kind of classics. But I mean, mm. it is kind of inescapable the extent to which First Contact, and I think Lily even has a line where she calls them. Some kind of zombies. Zombie, zombies. yeah, she it's, does. It's, it's, yeah. You know, it's kind of explicitly in there, and the fact that they move quite slowly, the fact that they're kind of lumbering, there is the fact that they're basically dead, reanimated dead bodies on one level because mm-hmm. their humanity has kind of been destroyed, mm-hmm. and also I suppose that kind of element of you know the way you know Picard shooting one of his own people of the kind of mercy killing to try and mm-hmm. prevent the assimilation. There's definitely that kind of zombie theme running through and that kind of influence of the zombie movie as a kind of genre. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's not... What's so interesting about it is is to... So they, they if they wrote the script to have more of a primary antagonist and less of this idea of Borg running around uh, en masse, mm. and then, of course, we've discussed the fact that actually, yeah, they only had about seven suits and so it had to be quite economic with yeah. the way it was shot. Uh, well, there's nothing about First Contact that I think has shot anything like a zombie film. I think it's right. approached... Uh, I think it's approached completely differently, uh, almost almost at a distance in in, in many respects, um, but with enough. Whereas the zombie, the zombie kind of aesthetic really requires a bit more of a frenetic, certainly from the camera point of view. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, this is. I mean, people can approach it in all sorts of ways, but this idea of being a bit more frenetic, maybe immersing the audience within a bit of chaos mm-hmm. because they're being overrun by hordes. Right, and actually, what we have in first contact is quite a controlled, measured, certainly aesthetically that everything that's going on, I think, looks planned. Yeah. Uh, despite the so so, yes, there's a huge influence because, of course, the Borg are very zombie-like. But I think the reason that this list of films is the way it is is uh, is then shown in the final product. Like right. These that's the, these yeah. these are. You know, Spielberg and, and Scott as two directors are, are extremely measured and controlled. You know, yeah, they, they yeah. really... Everything in um, its place. And everything every, is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to think now of, you know, more frenetic scenes, but they're just... It's it's not done the way that, let's say, um, Romero's zombie films mm. are done, and they've got their own aesthetic, so it's, I'm not really making a judgment about it. I'm just saying that I think that they're approached very differently um, that's an interesting point i guess the other the other genre that i've heard talked about in terms of this film is a kind of haunted house mm. genre of films like another kind of horror genre which which again you can see because the enterprise very much becomes a haunted house you know it's mm. full of monsters it's full of kind of it becomes this sort of alien environment in mm. a sense but again i don't i mean i don't to be honest no i'm not familiar enough really with that as a film genre to Ooh. to appreciate the influence of that or not but but obviously we know that Brannon Braga, for example, is very is very interested in horror. Mm-hmm. Is very interested in, in zombies. I mean, he's written mm-hmm. zombie episodes uh, elsewhere in, in Star mm-hmm. Trek, and in that kind of in bringing that into the kind of otherwise slightly sterile Star Trek universe, mm. in a sense. 
Uh, yeah, very. Yeah, so I think I'm trying to think what other episodes he's written actually off the top of my head. Well, but, in Enterprise, um, he wrote the episode. That's what I was thinking of, where the Vulcans all turn into zombies. Oh it's, yeah, it's kind of like yeah, Event yeah. Horizon meets yeah. sort of zombie movie. Yeah, um, totally. And quite, they're they're fast zombies. They're I think they're they're like sort of 28 days later zombies rather than classic than zombies, classic, classic slow zombies. zombies. I'm just but, trying to think if he did. Um, Another another great kind of Star Trek, say horror, but uh, is uh, Mpok Noor. Oh yeah, um, I'm just trying. To think I have who a feeling that, that was Renage. Brian Fuller, wasn't it? Is it Fuller or I've got? So I will find. But out. yes, definitely. But yeah, you know so, that yeah. that is like another haunted house. It is of, a totally yeah. haunted house. You yeah. know, here they turn up on this kind of decrepit version of their own station. Yeah, uh, and yes, there are some psychotic Cardassians uh, hanging around. You're completely right. Story by Brian Fuller, right? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. maybe not Brandon Braga, but yeah, this this it is it is interesting. I think when um, you know you take on these other genres, and there must be a Voyager as well. There is uh, the Voyager one where they're on a Malon freighter and something is haunting yes, them. Yes, the um, yeah, um, yeah. No, I know the, what you the mean. name of that one escapes me right now. But so you you. Um, I think Star Trek has done it a few times. Yeah, uh, yeah and yeah. I think uh, again that's a bit more of a. I think that's about the space you're in, which, mm. again, I think Frakes does an excellent job of dealing with this in, in first contact. You know, like, um, obviously in set dress and in production design, changing mm. the Enterprise into the yeah. haunted house, but also not shooting not shooting too close. Mm-hmm. And I know that I've read some interviews with him where he's a bit annoyed about some moments in the film, certainly where they're doing the spacewalk, where he actually wanted to shoot longer. I okay, think he right. did that with too many mid and close up shots. That's interesting. Um, yeah. He also said, uh, and this is a more recent interview with the, the Hollywood Reporter, but he said that he he thought that it would it would have been beautiful if J.J. Abrams had done it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, well, that that scene um, was pretty amazing at the time. No, I mean, at I the time like, for Star Trek, that was a real you know completely. technical accomplishment. That yes, scene, no, because they had was. apparent weightlessness. They had you know. Uh, and they had the spacesuits. I suppose you couldn't... Maybe the difficulty with shooting that wider is that you need to be able to see who's who. And it's quite difficult when they're all in those suits to get, a, a, to get a sense of that. And also, I suppose, it's pacing as well, which, mm. again, the Abrams uh, the Abrams films and, and, and that kind of style lends itself more to... Uh, I suppose Discovery's doing this a little bit more as well. Uh, lends itself to a more frenetic mm. pace. And actually, that's the way that they he shoots that space scene. I think is very again controlled. Mm-hmm. You're you're a little bit removed. You're not too far back, so you do know what's going on. Mm-hmm. But the cuts are slow. Everything's slow. I don't think I don't think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. But I think his his own reflection on it is well, God, couldn't that have been a great action set piece? Perhaps you it's know. interesting. You're right. It does feel like everything slows down. I mean, I sort of take that to be to do with the experience of being in the suit. It's almost like if you go mm. scuba diving, a, you know, everything slows down underwater. Mm. It sort of feels like everything slows down in space. And, you know, the fact that even each step has to be more deliberate because it has to kind of magnetically clamp onto the deck. So everything becomes much more measured and slow. And, and in a way, you're right, it's, it's strange for a kind of action set piece to mm. be slowed down. But I, th- I, I don't know, I feel it works quite well. No, and, and the film... I- I mean, it's, it's a funny one because actually, the, I'd say like the opening, I don't know, half hour of First Contact is very frenetic. It's very yeah, fast yeah. paced. You know, it's, it feels like there's a definite desire to get to, to kind of get through the setup and yeah. into the bulk of the story extremely quickly. You know, they're, they're out doing their, uh, thing in the neutral zone, then they're at Earth, then they're back in time, then they're this, then they're, blah, blah, blah. and then, uh, you know, and before you know it, we're, you know, the basic story is, has been kicked off, even yeah. though there's quite a lot of, 
setup has to be got through to get to that point. Yeah, I think they go. So there's a couple of things. I think that the I agree with you on that space, uh, the, the space walk scene, and I think actually the tension in that scene is built from it being slow, mm. like a frenetic shooting it. Maybe a bit more J.J. Abrams style. Maybe people are running. Maybe there's some lens flare. Maybe mm. you're cutting really fast. Okay, uh, you know I'm thinking of uh, what's that's the scene in the in the rebooted Star Trek where they're on that uh, they're on the Romulan uh, uh, mining thing as it and as they it do goes. The sky, like, yeah, they do the skydiving, right? Stuff, so okay, yeah. so maybe we can compare these two scenes, <clears throat> and they're shot completely differently. <clears throat> and the tension in 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 JJ Abrams' version comes from the fact that you don't know what's going on, that you yeah. can't see because the cuts are fast. And you're getting a bit of point of view, and and it just moves. But the tension in that spacewalk comes from the idea that they're trying to get this thing to work, and it just won't work. You、mm. know, so they have to. They're moving chips around, and they're pressing buttons, and they're hoping to get access to then do a very manual、mm. thing. And it is very slow, but you get these nice kind of shots back to the Borg, who aren't doing anything for a lot of that scene, and then they realise what they're trying to do, and they attack. And there's always so, that moment with the Borg where they. And, and there's a, a kind of sound cue that gets used over and over again in First Contact when sort of when a Borg wakes up essentially,、mm. and I think that's always been quite an effective aspect of the Borg. You know, going back to the best of both worlds, that kind of the, the eeriness of the fact that they're kind of going about their thing, they ignore you until they consider you a threat, and then、mm. when they do consider you a threat, it's like you know all eyes are on you, and there's、yeah. that kind of it brings that kind of terror to it. Which is done really well when they first in inside the ship when they first get to the Borg. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That, that and suddenly they all come to life. That is that is very well, you know. Suddenly, oh, oh my God, we've got to.、Uh, everyone's coming at me, you know. And then Wolf starts whacking them with a phaser rifle. There's、yeah. something uncanny about it. I think is、mm. part of it. Is and the idea of this kind of automata、mm. that seem very mechanical, very inhuman. Maybe this would be the time to move on to talking about Blade Runner because there are a lot of shots in a lot of scenes in Blade Runner that kind of play on that because you have you have the character of J F Sebastian who has this kind of collection of automata、yeah. and you have that scene towards the end where Deckard is going there looking for is it Pris the, the yes yeah. it is yeah and she's pretending to be a kind of a mechanical、Dog. toy、mm. essentially he's going around trying to work out what, you know which is the which is this sort of thoughtless mindless、uh, mechanism and which is the You know, mechanical killing machine、yeah. uh, uh, antagonist, and the kind of threat and tension that is present in that uncertainty is、mm. very, very much in some ways reminiscent of that kind of threat of the Borg. That the fact that they're going about their business, the fact that they're ignoring you, almost builds up the threat more、mm. somehow because you know that it's going to turn on its head at some point. You get the the payoff in sequences like that is the ability to to use those. Back, let's call them background figures. I mean,、yeah. they're 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 not. They're they're part of the threat in a way, and they certainly build atmosphere. So in the Blade Runner scene, you've got him kind of trying to work out, like you say, which is which, and having some kind of investigation. And then once they do actually get into the fight, you've still got some cutaways back to these weird figures that were in the background,、mm-hmm. so you can use them again. What Frakes does in that initial sequence, every Borg that attacks them. Well, we got a shot of them on the way in,、mm. so we were expecting. In a way, we knew.、Uh, I think the best example of that is the two that are up high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so we get that shot that tells us there's two Borg up high, and then and then we think, oh yeah. So when this all goes wrong, which it's definitely going to,、uh, those Borg are going to jump down, which surely enough they do,、mm. and so you you're you're setting it up. 
by showing all these weird these background figures and then bringing those background figures to life as antagonists and I think that's again it's a good way of building tension the audience pretty much knows what's coming but still you've, you've introduced the threat cut mm. away at a time mm. you know mm. I think it's quite an interesting technique I think Blade Runner is a really interesting I mean an interesting fi- I mean for my money of, of all the films on this list this would be my top of my list if yeah. I was going to you know watch one of them um, just you know partly purely kind of visually I think it's just a astonishingly interesting visually interesting dense interesting mm. film but also I think it does have other links to first contact that maybe are, are less obvious than, than some of the other films I mean I mean kind of thematically there's an obvious link with the eyes you know mm-hmm. eyes being very important in Blade Runner you have you know you have the, the the eye of that glassy eye of that owl you have the eyes the man who creates eyes and they mm-hmm. go to see the you know the eye, whatever he is the sort of eye scientist you know workshop the workman yeah. uh, who makes the eyes uh, in first contact you get you know, it opens with a shot of the eye of Picard's eye. Then we see this drill coming towards it. The eye is going to be kind of brutalized in a sense. And then, of course, we have Geordie gets his eyes instead of yeah, his yeah. Uh, instead of his visor, which is kind of interesting. So you get, kind of get more eyes there. That, so there's definitely this kind of sense of the the eye becomes, as it does in Discovery, actually, interestingly, mm. becomes this kind of motif that keeps sort of cropping up one way or another. Mm. Interesting, of course, in Blade Runner. The eyes are also the way that the replicants kill people. They kill mm. them in this quite horrific way, very much like the first shot of First Contact, by sticking their yeah. thumbs through their eyes, which is, you know, it's kind of unnecessary. They could snap their neck. They could do they could do yeah, something yeah. more straightforward and less uh, horrific. But mm. there is something, you know, going back to King Lear, about the idea of, of being blinded, of, of being attacked through your eyes, that is mm. so viscerally sort of unbearable somehow yeah no I think you're completely right uh, in fact one of the worst examples of that is uh, you know the HBO show Deadwood I've never seen it actually uh, it's, it's right. fa- it is fantastic so yeah. you'd love it but uh, there is a horrific fight scene that involves someone's eye getting yeah. getting pulled yeah, yeah. out yeah. That's, that's just uh, vile and yeah you're right so it is it's, it's actually I suppose in both instances in First Contact as in uh, as in Blade Runner it's preying on I suppose our our the audience's worst fears of like the mm. bit of your body that you really don't want someone to go near. That's you the know. most vulnerable. Yeah, the completely. Most kind of, yeah. And the most, I mean, it's sense, mm. you know, so um, you're, you're being attacked and it, it would be so visceral because, you know, it's one of the five ways in which we kind of understand and interpret the world. And so I think cinema plays and for cinema, it's the most important. Yes, of course. Yeah, mean, absolutely. You know, because it's essentially a visual. I mean, I know there's obviously the sound, you know, and the sound, that the other reason I think Blade Runner is such a great film is the sound design is amazing. Yeah, completely. But, uh, but it, you know, the visual is the most important sense for mm. cinema. It also probably, realistically, if you were being attacked, is the sense that you're going to use the most to protect yourself. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so there is that element of being kind of... Blinded. Blind, yeah, being blinded and, and being... Um, and that, that sort of being very compromising. Mm. I, I suppose the other element that strikes me as a, a a comparison between those two films is this kind of noirish element, which we get with Picard and the Dixon Hill mm. side of things. And the, and the, the Dixon Hill Picard, and actually the, the Dixon Hill scene in First Contact, I believe is shot in the same location as the police station in Blade Runner, which is the right. uh, train station in Los Angeles. Mm. Um, and, so, and has some of that same architecture and some of that mm. same sort of feel. And I think there's a kind of comparison as well with, you know, Deckard in Blade Runner is this, it's pretty awful character in some ways. I mean, yeah. you know, so you kind of can't help watching it and thinking, you know, is this guy the hero or is he kind of a villain? I mean, he, mm. cause he, there's something quite brutal about him. His job is so, is, 
cruel. It's, you know, and we get that with Picard with the Tommy gun gunning down the Borg and Lily sort of saying, you know, you were enjoying that. Uh, you know, you killed one of your own crew members and you were relishing it, essentially. Mm. And in Blade Runner, there's that quite shocking scene where he kills the replicant that's working as a stripper and she's yeah. basically in her underwear and he's pursuing her through the street. You know, almost like, I mean, something we might come on to talk about is Terminator mm. films. He's, he's almost the Terminator in a sense, even yeah, though sure. they're the robots and he's the human being. He is the cold, heartless, callous one. I mean, apparently when Blade Runner was first screened, because there's this big issue about, you know, do you, the, the theatrical cut versus the director's cut, yeah. and most people think the director's cut is much better. It, it raises this question of whether Deckard is a replicant mm-hmm. or not. It kind of has this interesting thematic stuff going on. Apparently the French audiences of Blade Runner, I read, uh, took all of that from the theatrical cut just because they thought that metaphorically he was, because the connection was being yeah. made, this is the real machine, this is the heartless machine, this is the kind of the monster in a sense, not yeah. these... You not these not robot the robots. characters. The, yeah. the monster is the detective in a sense. Yeah. And I suppose you get some of that with Picard in his Dixon Hill persona, mm. you know, gunning down these boar, giving into this kind of rage. And mm. the fact the way he screams in that scene, which is so un unPicard. Mm. And he can only do it because it's dra- the sound is drowned out by the mm. by the machine gun, basically. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Blade Runner is an interesting one. The different cuts are the different cuts are interesting. I, I think there is actually six or seven versions that exist. Mm. The the ones at the time for different international audiences were um, edited differently. So you actually had three different um, theatrical cuts at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And you're right. And I suppose the studio kind of invasion into Blade Runner was very much about possibly making Deckard kind of more likable. You know, with the voiceover, yeah, with so the voiceover. You know, that kind of awful, every, they drive away into the countryside at the end ending, mm-hmm. which is, um, was footage they took from The Shining. So I, th- I think that a lot of that was, was to kind of build him up into a nicer person, realizing mm-hmm. that you're, you're quite right. He's pretty brutal mm-hmm. and there's not much in him that's particularly redeemable mm-hmm. in whichever cut you watch, mm-hmm. I, I think. In a way, that's why I quite like him <laughs> personally. But the, Star Trek's a bit different because Picard, we we know Picard already, mm. or we, at least we think we do. You know, I mean, again, your Star Trek audience definitely does, mm. and of course, First Contact being released at a time when it was all at its peak. Mm. You know, this was this was Star Trek's high season, so everyone had this notion of who he was, and so actually, the writers were able to put this stuff in, you know, without having to do too much work around it. You didn't have to do within a whole film, and maybe that's why First Contact is able to do what it does in a shorter space of time. You know, other current blockbusters can't even do it with an extra hour. Mm. You know, on on what First Contact's like an hour 40. You know, you don't have to do the full story mm. of, of uh, and I think he gets away with saying you've it. you've got all the backstory. You've got the backstory. And also it's the most famous episode of Next Gen. That's it's the, it. one, it's the yeah. one episode of Next Gen that everyone has seen, in yeah, a sense, that's because it. everyone remembers that cliffhanger. That cliffhanger, and, yeah, completely. Yeah. 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 Uh, in fact, actually, the Hollywood Reporter article I was reading on First Contact, another great Hollywood reporter they did uh, article they did was on uh, what they think is TV's most famous cliffhanger. Right, yeah. And then yeah. that was the Next Generation's yeah. kind of best yeah. of both worlds you know, because it was all around all the rumours about Patrick Stewart even leaving the show. And so yeah. people were really genuinely in that hiatus between thinking, well, what's going to happen when when everyone comes back? And of mm. course, the show didn't change that much 
And there's an interesting sense, I suppose, what one of the things that's strange about First Contact is that we're seeing so many years down the line, the repercussions of that experience. And that's not so they're not touching in the show because, you know, you do get the episode Family, you get the episode... Yeah. Um, I Borg. Uh, yeah, I Borg, for example. So, yeah. so it, it is it is touched on, but it's not... It, it's surprising in First Contact because it comes back in such a visceral way. It comes mm. back in such an uncontrolled rage, in mm. a sense, compared to what we've seen previously of Picard kind of dealing with the trauma and dealing, you know, and it's saying I Borg it, there's a kind of very Picard-like coldness. There's a kind of, it's hardened him, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's made him more callous in a sense uh, as, a re- as a result. Whereas what we see in this film is it's not that it's hard, it has hardened him in a sense. It's hardened him to uh, not to listen to reason, not to, mm. you know, there's no, well, it's interesting that, you know, if you think of what's the kind of quintessential next gen scene, it's the conference room. Everyone mm-hmm. sits around the table and he listens to what everyone has to say. Mm. We don't get that. We get everyone trying to persuade him of something on the bridge and he tells him to piss off, basically. Mm. Then he goes into the conference room on his own to try and have a conference of one. Yeah. Uh, and Lily comes in and, and kind of performs that role and he has a hissy fit and screams and smashes everything. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, um, and obviously, I mean, I don't mean to trivialize that scene. It's, mm. you know, obviously that's the, sort of dramatic core of the film and it's an amazingly well put together scene but it is interesting because it's the sort of in the sense that movie Picard is kind of the antithesis of TV Picard Mm. that scene is the kind of anti-conference scene that takes place in the conference lounge yeah completely that's a really actually really interesting way of of looking at it I mean one interpretation of, of the kind of visceral reaction that he's having Bear in mind, we start the film with a nightmare mm-hmm. and that that nightmare leads quite directly to, and again, this is how the film operates on a, on a kind of uh, a pace that is just, I think, very brave. Quite mm-hmm. a bold thing to do is to just get moving the way they do. No setup, no, uh, no kind of cold open. Uh, you know, they just literally get going. And, he has um, that line, yes, I know, the Borg. The Borg, that's it. That's exactly. It. <laughs> that's all and, the setup. You but need, then basically. is his more visceral reaction, um, starting with that dream, triggered by their proximity? Mm-hmm. Um, although I suppose then, you know, he was with a Borg and I Borg and indeed near them again in, in Descent. But it's not But it's not the Queen. And Maybe it's, that's the it. queen Maybe it's the Queen who really yeah. had that effect on him you know, as you get that uh, that bit of exposition where he kind of says, oh, actually, I do remember you, mm. you know, and maybe it's the proximity of her again that, that kind of triggers him a bit more uh, in that kind of post-traumatic stress mm. way. That's where, interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, mm. a reading of it. They leave a bit open to interpretation, which I think is always good in films personally. But that's... I think the Queen is definitely an interesting character in terms of Blade Runner as well, because... She has something in common with Batty, which who's the the kind of leader of the of the mm-hmm. replicants in Blade Runner. Very charismatic, very mm-hmm. intelligent. You, you know, uh, uh, interestingly, I mean, I'd say Batty compared to, to Deckard, Batty seems kind of almost humane. He seems he he's not the brute. He's kind of he's quite poetic. He's mm-hmm. quite sort of thoughtful. He's quite um, you, you know, he has that the famous speech about these amazing things that he's seen. He's very into kind of philosophical Mm -hmm. issues in the way that Deckard is very kind of nuts and bolts and kind of getting Mm -hmm. the job done and all this sort of thing. And I think there's kind of an echo of that after at the very end of the film with Data, the way that Data talks about the Queen after she's died. And he sort of mourns her death in the Mm. same way as Blade Runner as a film, I think, mourns the death of the replicants. There's this kind of theme of mortality. There's the fact that at the very end, he doesn't actually die because Deckard uh, succeeds. Deckard Mm. effectively loses and then time runs out and he just sits down and dies. Mm. And the music in Blade Runner 
is very kind of melancholic and it mm. has that kind of sense of this sort of melancholy tragedy of these expiring beings in mm. a sense and i think there is something of that in the in the death of the queen that you know data has this kind of real sense of regret that something special has been lost even mm. as she was the antagonist even as she wanted to do awful things but that there was something kind of about her that that has gone now yeah, I think... Apart from when she comes back in Voyage. Of course, yeah. <laughs> suddenly yeah. she's back and Susanna Thompson and yeah. Green. <laughs> yes, you're, I think you're completely right. There is, um, and that's down to, uh, it's certainly down to scripting, uh, uh, but also down to performance. I thought Alice Krieger was really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, good, very good in that role. Again, lots of stories about how she auditioned for it and, and, and kind of personally says she got a feel for the character mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. she got into it. She also appears in Deadwood and has a nice arc there, just okay. a nice link. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, there is that sense at the end that we, we've lost or that Data has lost, uh, you know, I, I suppose it's that the kind of bigger philosophical theme that the film's playing into is this search for perfection. Mm. And if we can say that kind of Star Trek is a bit utopian in it, in its way of kind of perfecting or sort of rather projecting a perfect human image, like mm. who, mm. Uh, who are we and how do we, how can we better ourselves? Mm. And even Picard has that lovely line uh, to Lily saying, you know, actually the, uh, the driving force now is not uh, the acquisition of wealth, but the betterment of all, all humanity. Mm. In a way, the queen has similar goals. Mm. She's looking for some kind of perfection. It's possible that in that sort of, again, Star Trek's classic theme of exploration, it's possible that the queen doesn't know what that is either. Mm. You know, it's not because it sounds like they essentially just decided to start experimenting on themselves by fusing technology and the knowledge of all these different cultures. Mm. And it sounds like they haven't quite decided what perfection looks like either apart mm. from perhaps an omega particle mm. Uh, mm. In, um, in the omega yeah, directive yeah. but i think there was that kind of synthesis between them all uh between the three really because data had a thing for her but really she had a thing for picard and there's that sense. sort of love triangle yes sort of very <laughs> yeah. weird love triangle yeah. um because of course picard and data have their their relationship as well mm. and so you know she wanted picard who wanted data and data. There's a sort of weird Oedipal thing going on possibly as well Mm. in the sense that, you know, Picard is like a father to data and then she sort of leaves, she seems to sort of forsake the father for the son somehow. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? There's there's definitely a lot of weird uh, tension in that dynamic between the three of them and the fact that there's this kind of sexual element to it with data and, and with Picard, you know, implied by that that flashback kind of scene where we see her up in his ear or whatever. Yeah. It is interesting, and I think you know. Of course, it's it's sort of trademark Bran and Braga, not only to bring mm. in the Borg. That, that when you're going to make an individual that's going to be the queen, she's not you know she's not the queen up on the throne somewhere. She's this sexy, as kind of revolting and and creepy and and also quite terrifying as she is. There's that scene where she gets really angry and she sort of barks and she's mm. quite you know scary lady, but she's also dripping with this kind of sexuality Mm. and sensuality and that that's her kind of route in with data is because she knows that she can offer him something in that respect but it's Mm. very much this kind of sex and violence get kind of conflated into one thing and i think when you look at bran and braga's work in star trek there's often that kind of element of it and you you have it with um seven of nine the borg babe that's what they always called her the borg yeah, babe. yeah and that is basically you know borg represents violence the babe represents sex there's kind of you mash those two things together and that's that's where his kind of interests lie in some ways yeah. um uh, so so it kind of 
it sort of ties into all that, but it does also think in Blade Runner, it ties into this idea of these, you know, the female replicants are, you know, one of them's a stripper, the other one is described as being a, a pleasure model or something. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, she's basically a, a kind of prostitute robot mm-hmm. in a sense. So there's very much this association between their their kind of sexy characters, but they're also dangerous. And there's this idea that the sexy the, the sexy woman is a kind of vampish thing, going back to the noir thing, the sexy yeah, woman yeah. who suddenly strangles you and tries to kill you or whatever, which is what we see in Blade Runner. And even, you know, Pris, she does that kind of acrobatic routine mm. and then clamps Deckard's head between her thighs in this yeah. kind of, again, a sort of conflation of sex and violence. She's yeah. going to kill him in this kind of distinctly sexy way interestingly the way that she dies is echoed in first contact i think because he shoots her and she has this kind of what looks like a fit basically as Mm. if kind of going back to alien same thing we get with the android in alien i think Mm. when that when the mechanics go wrong it's this kind of juddering shaking thrashing around the kind of the machine is kind of out of control Mm. like a motor that's you know miss going wrong somehow yeah and in first contact what happens is when the queen dies all the borg experience the same thing they all start Mm. fitting basically they all start sparking and crashing into things and you know they don't disintegrate they don't kind of just go to sleep or whatever like we've seen before they kind of have this sort of explosive fit basically as as a response and i think that definitely you know is something that might have been influenced by that scene in blade runner and that kind of the kind of shock of that because there's something quite alarming and and distressing about it to watch yeah and I would, I would actually say the same of the scene in um, in alien when ash goes yeah that's the one i'm thinking of you yeah, know yeah, yeah. like i mean that it was it was twist on twist at that point with that film i think mm. and um he obviously just goes mad and, and quite coolly and calmly tries to strangle her but mm. by the time strangle her tries to shove a magazine down her throat but by the time he gets hit and then starts whirring around and going mad and there's mm. also the white liquid that goes mm. everywhere and it, yeah. it, again it's 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 quite again i think quite visceral and, and shocking in in that regard and mm. i suppose certainly the one thing they did with the ball queen in her death at the end was the disintegrating skin that mm. was an effects shot that you know really must have been a deliberate choice that i think works quite well a, a deliberate choice to show that bit and then let the Borg carry the more mechanical yeah you know what you're mechanical expecting mechanical failure yeah because yeah. yeah. of course they make the remark we know that if you hit that tank you're going to destroy the organic matter yeah like that's that's plot pointed really early on mm. uh, that's ha- that's what we want to do lots of shots of it in the background in every scene with data mm-hmm. definitely a few glances of him at that tank can mm-hmm. I get to that tank mm-hmm. yeah so I think uh, I think that's really interesting that they chose then to have her have I suppose a more organic death mm-hmm. she's the one who falls into the into the is it plasma and, and she or yeah. whatever it is yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and she's the one whose skin is flayed off fla- is quite, flayed yeah. off yeah giving the Borg a human I suppose it's the choice they've given the Borg a human face or like a character mm. and she's she's kind of been present and is, is carrying that and like all good villains needs to go properly as yeah. opposed to, you know, I suppose if it had just been some kind of malfunction mm. or if she'd just got phasered, it just wouldn't have felt anywhere near as satisfying. But it's interesting, she has to be killed twice in a sense yeah. she has to, the physical has to disintegrate and then Picard snaps her neck basically, mm. which again sort of ties into that kind of 
brutality of it. There is something quite brutal about that. There's also something, there's also a kind of Shakespearean echo, I think, because it's, it's this skull and you kind of have to, you know, Patrick Stewart has this whole sort of Shakespearean thing. So obviously if you see Patrick Stewart picking up a skull and, and sort of looking at it, there's that kind of, that's that sort of echo there. But I think the other thing, of course, is that the, the film or films that seem to me to be absent from this list that we've been going through, that is very strongly echoed in that shot is the Terminator films because mm. the, what's inside the Borg Queen and we only find out at the very end because it's not what you know the rest of the Borg are they're cyborgs they're organic beings with mechanical stuff on top and the Borg Queen when we first meet her she seems to be a sort of organic well she's we see her sort of her mechanical spine don't we but mm. we don't we haven't seen the inside and in the same way as in the first Terminator film you start off with the kind of fleshy Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. and then the flesh gets kind of ripped down until you're at the the machine yeah and the machine version that's inside the Terminator looks very much like the the machine version that's inside the Queen I think that's a really interesting a really interesting parallel and of course when you've got this idea of there's a couple of things really he's directing an action film mm-hmm. essentially I mean it's a bit difficult to call any Star Trek film a full action film but I think First Contact is probably one of the ones that comes the closest mm. So he's directing an action film, and then both ter- and 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 the antagonists are robots mm. or, or cyborgs, mm-hmm. and that that is essentially both Terminators. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. here we go. Um, so let's have a look at those films. Yeah, it is it is difficult to see if there's any other kind of similarities, but I think that that moment and that that choice of of what the inside of the Queen looks like. From a design perspective, it's pretty, yeah, for pretty sure. influenced. The other thing that struck me, though, and that this, uh, I suppose, is it might come down to the writing more, and I don't know if it's deliberate, but it struck me both the Terminator films end in factories, don't they? And yeah. there's this sense that the mechanical can only be destroyed by sort of being taken back to the kind of, back to the forge or back to the kind, back to this kind of workshop yeah. environment. And, of course, First Contact ends, it doesn't end on the bridge, it doesn't end on the hull, it ends in engineering, which mm. is very much the same kind of thing. It's got to, it comes down to the nuts and bolts, it comes down to the kind of, the mechanical heart of the ship, in a sense. Mm. Um, so that kind of was, may, is maybe one loose parallel between Yeah, them. no, I think, I think that's a really fair, uh, and again, of course, actually a really good parallel that's only just occurred to me is that uh, he does die in the second Terminator by falling into... Yeah. Lava, yeah. essentially, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and that's and that's it. He can be melted back down. Yeah, the, it's a bit of an inverse, really, because of course that's destro- that destroys his mechanical kind mm. of uh, properties, it destroys the machine. But of course, what you've got in first contact is a, is something that destroys the organic matter and preserves the machine. And yeah. Preserves the machine. Yeah. Whereas that kind of molten. I suppose the it, the, the the molten metal or whatever the or the lava or whatever it is mm. is is the point at which the boundary between flesh and metal no longer exists. Yeah, you know what totally. I mean? Because yeah, it will yeah, dissolve everything equally. It's so yeah. hard. Because normally, you know, we think of flesh as being quite vulnerable. And when we see this again and again in First Contact, because Data has this flesh grafted onto mm-hmm. him, he gets hurt and he kind of cowers in, mm-hmm. in pain, which he's not used to experiencing. Whereas in his mechanical sense, you know, Data can survive that plasma because... Or he's just losing a bit of flesh off the outside. Mm. Although we don't get a sense of how unbelievably painful that must be for him, because he's, you know, we see how how painful it is for him getting his arm cut slightly. Yeah. But he's just had his face flayed off at the end of that film. Yeah, you know? totally. And we don't actually ever really dwell on that. He seems kind of fine next time we see him. I, he's in a sort of philosophical mode, but he's not um, in agonising pain. I wonder if somewhere in between it all, he was able to turn his emotion chip off. Right. Right. You know, that's the only thing that you can think because yeah, he doesn't, 
he's in that mist and then he comes out of the mist, mm. grabs the queen, takes her back down mm. without the sense that he's injured in any way, shape or form, mm. Mm. which I think is quite interesting. But there, there yeah. must have been a moment where he was able to regain control. Yeah. I mean, especially in order to do the things he does. Well, there's a sort of interesting question, I suppose, with data in first contact, because the film wrong foots the audience as much mm. as because well, I suppose what we discover in first contact is that all those poker games that data's been attending, he's picked something up learned, because yes. he's learned to be a really good bluffer. And you wouldn't think data would be capable of bluffing the board queen. Uh, but assuming that what he says to Picard is true, that he was only, you know, it was only a fraction of a second that he mm. was actually considering her offer for. He is playing, you know, again, this idea of the kind of chess playing or whatever, like she's got a plan, she's working through it all. He is also working through quite an elaborate plan because he's not, you know, he, he could have uh, not given up the codes to turn off the auto-destruct. He could have, mm. do, you, do you know what I mean? There are other yeah, ways yeah. that he could have played it. And he's he's calculated it all to to quite a an elaborate degree mm. if you think through what's what's going on. You, you know, he is, he is playing her quite subtly and quite carefully. Mm. And just also, I suppose, all of that, to get to, to get near enough to that tank to shatter it. Yeah, you yeah. know that 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 was the end game, which we assume may well have happened whether Picard got down there or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, um, yeah. there's nothing, um, there's nothing to indicate that Data would have had to do anything different mm. had Picard um, not been there, mm. uh, but that would have made for less drama. Mm. So, <laughs> well, so it's interesting. So the the Terminator films, as I say, are not not. Uh, on that list that's associated with it. I don't know whether, I, mean, I can't imagine that Jonathan Frakes hadn't seen them. Maybe they were kind of, maybe they were too close because as you say, they were about cyborgs and they were about, uh, you, you know, maybe they didn't want to draw attention to that. Whereas mm. it's, whereas it's sort of preferable to draw attention to Jaws, which people are like, oh, Jaws, what's Jaws got to do with first contact? And yeah. You can kind of see the borrowing and it's a little bit more subtle in some ways. I'm just curious, do you, are there any other films that it seems to you, I think you mentioned 2001, that yeah. there may have been an influence there. Are there any other films that you kind of think that you can see echoes of in First Contact uh, that maybe we haven't really looked at or we haven't really thought um, about? That's a, that's a big question. There's something about, there's something about the, the, the Earth. I'm, I'm now sort of scrambling for some kind of reference here, but there's something about the way the humans are in those kind of camps Oh yeah, and and that kind of aesthetic that that I wonder, I really kind of wonder about that design, and it, it's it takes you, it takes the mind to all sorts of places, more historical kind of grounded films. Uh, if we think about refugee camps, and if we yeah. think about this, I think that you know the Montana kind of compound mm. is is really dishevelled, and um, you know we 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 know that that wasn't a good period of Earth's fake mm, history because mm. it was shortly after World War Three. But you can see that that recovery, if it's been 10 years, well, that's been slow. Mm. And clearly people aren't prospering and it's not, you know, if this is Montana, this is... This, this is this austerity is Montana. Yeah, sure. War, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, austerity, yeah. austerity Montana. And I think, again, where where that aesthetic came from, I'm I'm not quite sure, but you could point certainly to some some historical examples um i think of, of it's quite well done i think the aesthetic of those of those scenes compared if you think of, compared to insurrection for example with the baku village mm -hmm. which just looks like a sort of it looks like somewhere in california do you know mm -hmm. what i mean it, yeah, doesn't, totally. it doesn't it's not a very believable set somehow whereas i think the set in first contact it does you're right it has a kind of element of 
Uh, I mean, in Star Trek terms, it reminds me a little bit of in the episode Ensign Row, we see the yeah. Bajoran, exactly the same sort of slightly sort of shantytown kind yeah. of uh, refugee community. I mean, interestingly, First Contact was originally called Resurrection and uh-huh. was going to be, and then they changed the name because the film Alien Resurrection came out. Mm. But the reason it was called Resurrection, apparently, is because the name, there was a town down downstairs down you know and, and picard was going to be on the ground and Riker was going to be on the ship and this is one of the things they changed but the picard story down on the ground was picard and lily who was then called ruby uh in the town of resurrection montana mm. uh, and so and it was named after that town so i'm kind of curious and, and i think they had more about the sort of political setup at the time they had mm. you know there is brief references in the film to the eastern coalition and the um when, when the Borg first attacks, she says it's... The, I can't remember what she calls them. It's no, the so we haven't just, seen them in yeah, years. You know, yeah. the, the original version of the film would have kind of, I suppose, situated it more in that historical moment. Whereas what we get is that is kind of all stripped away. The, the war is just in the background. It's, yes, they're living this kind of basic uh, existence. And really, it's all just about this one event. It's about this one space flight that has mm. to happen the next day. And really everything around that, there isn't really a world outside that encampment in Montana. We're mm. not, we have no awareness of, of what's going on in the world more generally. Yeah, which is, again, it's an interesting creative decision. But quite often, it's a funny one, isn't it? Quite often Star Trek does that because, and, and again, it's an economy of storytelling whereby you, you have a film here or you have an episode or maybe even if you're lucky, a two-parter to uh, I'm thinking of um, that Deep Space Nine. In fact, actually, there's another place that the aesthetic, I think, has slightly come from, uh, Past Tense. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, the, the Deep Space Nine two-parter, where, mm. which had come from a real story. You know, the writers of that episode had heard about this idea of um, putting homeless people in a, in, a, in a sort of sanctuary and mm. thought, well, oh, my God, that's a, that's, a, that's a horrible thing to do. That's a ghetto. Mm. Uh, and so wrote that episode. And, again, we're transported into our fake history and the Bell Riots and, mm. and this very specific situation. Mm. But there isn't a world outside of L.A. Mm. You know, we are, we are in the ghetto, or we're in uh, the kind of posh bit that Dax is mm. in, and we're not really anywhere else. And so the geo, I suppose, the grander geopolitics of America or of, of yeah, America or of the world, or or, of the yeah. world yeah. are completely sidelined mm. um, in in favour of, of of kind of quite specific storytelling. I suppose an example where that doesn't quite work, but again it does, is is the classic city on the edge of forever. Where right. Again, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, actually the geopolitics have to come into play because that's what changes the timeline. Mm. But we're separated from it in a sense, in that yeah. it's not the the you know, we're not it's not actually taking place in the war, for example, which yeah. is what it's kind of ostensibly about. It's taking place how many years earlier. Yeah. So it's kind of in a bit of a bubble in yeah. itself, that episode. Yeah, totally. And I think the only then I'm just trying to think of examples that that, you know, I suppose again it's quite clever. Um, but it's a Star Trek trope, is to take us to these other places and, and times that are f- either part of our own history or familiar enough to to us, mm-hmm. you know, uh, not too far away from mm-hmm. what we can imagine, um, and take us to those places and tell some really interesting stories that have a bit more of a profound kind of impact, but leave the rest of it up to us, I mean, because mm-hmm. we don't know. I mean, even, even Khan's story... Mm-hmm. Is is just never. If you think about the wrath of Khan, if you even think about Space Seed, well, we don't re- we get some of it, but we don't get much of it. You know, mm-hmm. um, you, there's various books and comics that 
that tell us a bit more, but that's all non-canon. You know, what's actually in those episodes is more about Calm as a, as a person. We just see a sort of hint of it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's interesting when you were talking about past tense, I suppose the difference between past tense and first contact, which they do have that kind of similarity, is the element of hope in first contact. Mm. Because past tense is very much the kind of classic Deep Space Nine. It's really grim and gritty and awful. And, and yes, these riots are kind... I suppose there's a similarity. These riots are going to lead to something and they're going to, people are going to start questioning it and so on. So there's, there's, there's a similarity there that it's going to be this pivotal moment. Mm. And again, in the original draft for first contact, Picard was going to... Uh, Cochrane was going to be either dead or unconscious, I think. Unconscious, maybe. And Picard mm. was going to have to fly the ship. So it was the same thing if the captain takes on this historical role and pretends to be you know, whoever. But I suppose what's interesting and, and what gives First Contact its heart, and I think what makes it work as a film as well, is that it doesn't just have all this action. It is an action film. It's got all this action stuff, but it has got a real heart to it mm. as well. And that is kind of what elevates it somehow. Yeah. It's not just a kind of romp with battling the Borg and all this kind of uh, all this stuff. It's It's got real drama. It's got a real kind of character arc for Picard. And it's got this real heart of Star Trek in it because mm. as you said before it is you know the stakes of the film are the Star Trek universe will or won't come into existence and they mm. kind of they really sell that and they manage to make that work in the scenes down below mm. uh, to kind of sell the importance of that and make you care about what happens yeah totally and it's also so we are in a bit of a bubble um, but it doesn't really matter here because um, because the stakes are high you've got in a character in the, in the characterization of Zephram Cochrane not just the heart of the thing, but actually, you know, he's not this idealised, you know, put him on a pedestal kind of hero. He's actually a really flawed kind of normal human being. And then I suppose it becomes a story of the triumph of the human spirit and overcoming things as opposed to actually, you know, Cochrane was always great, mm. you know. And I, I think that you're right, there is a, there is a similarity, but a, a disparity as well between uh, past tense and first contact, where, of course, Deep Space Nine liked to be grim, mm. and it was. Um, and I don't know that that tone ever belongs, ever, ever does too well in the cinema. So mm. I think they, they did a really good thing with first contact by, by giving it a bit more, as you say, heart, um, and a bit more of an uh, optimism that, uh, again, by the fact it was a box office success and it can't just be Star Trek fans who were in, in the cinema, I think that uh, that attests to how well they did. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining me to talk about First Contact today. It's been really interesting to hear some of your thoughts about some of those cinematic influences. Why don't you let us let our listeners know if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to contact you on Twitter or online? Uh, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, yeah, uh, Twitter at none n u double n the less. Thank you. Well, talking about uh, cinematic influences on First Contact isn't the only thing we've been doing this week. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the Trek FM network. Previously on Trek FM, literary treks. But let's start with that first one, that Siege in Superspace. So, oh boy. Superspace, I I don't know, is this is this better than subspace? Is it? Well, I think is it this? is. I, the thing I, I really love about this issue is we haven't had uh, many stories at all about superspace. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Right. So, okay, they're under orders. They're not supposed to talk about, it, and that's how they—that's how you maintain the continuity. That Kirk and Spock are surprised that there's a mirror universe. I mean, that works. That—that—that that, that makes sense. But these people were there, 
they know that there's doppelgangers there because they know that because Cadet Tilly became Captain Killy, right? They know they know this. To the journey. There was a lot of face melting in this episode. You're right. <laughs> Everyone's melting. What a world! What a world! It was yeah, and everybody was slimy looking. Why were they so sweaty? Why? Seven of Nine had this full-on board queen look about her. She did, and who else was really sweaty looking besides Seven? Neelix was really sweaty looking. Yeah, well, yeah, I thought he was, and he had kind of a silver tone. He had the silver. He blood did. Like he was distinguished, distinguished melting Neelix. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he got a buff and polish. (laughs) (laughs) The 602 Club. No, I I mean, it was really all we had was like animated shows. Like you had like the animated Batman series, the animated Superman series. And uh, as far as the big screen went, it was not so great. I mean, you had Blade. Blade was... Some people cite Blade as kind of the precursor for the superhero genre picking back up, but... It was very much kind of a, a genre film. I don't. I know technically it is a comic book film. I don't know if I'd count it in the realm of like big budget superhero movies. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the large conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media, and you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X Files podcast. If you type that into Twitter and Facebook, so thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended, all right.